Good to see everybody. Let us pray. Gracious Father, um, be with us now. Uh, speak and unstop our ears. Awaken our ears, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So moving through this series, uh, Your Own Personal Jesus, um, which has become a way to look at the first five chapters of John and some uh, going into John 3, which is, of course, the chapter in which the most famous verse probably in in, uh, in the New Testament is contained, John 3.16, and I don't know that we're even going to make it that far. I was thinking about that this morning. It's like, we might not get there. We may stop at John 3.15, depending on time. Um, this is also uh, uh, it's the chapter where, where Nicodemus comes into the picture. Um, Nicodemus, who is a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling party of the, the, uh, uh, the Jewish council at the time, um, held in esteem as somebody that I read, um, sort of like a senator, you know, when they walked into the room, you're like, oh, look, there's Nicodemus. You know, you'd kind of have that kind of of, uh, of, a, of a sense of position and place and respect and all. And so he comes very importantly to Jesus under cover of darkness um, to come sort of consult with him. So before we go there, just thinking about this theme, uh, the your own personal Jesus, obviously. And I'm looking around the room, and I know a lot of people have been in the classes the couple of weeks before and some haven't. Um, it's obviously a title lifted from the Depeche Mode song. Um, 87? 6? Am I know? Um, okay, no Depeche Mode groupies here. It's good. <laughs> I'm going to say it was 1987. Um, there you go. Uh, what's meant by it? Uh, sort of part A, we're trying to track, you know, what's our new Moses? What's the law around which we are oriented? Um, what's the operating system? That's the word I sort of stumbled into uh, the first week um, that has been downloaded into us and from which now we process all of the experiences, the information, our thoughts, our feelings, the things that we perceive both within us and outside of us. Um, what's that word, that system, that lens, as AA would call it, um, through which we see the world, um, because that then, uh, that principle, that idea, that ideology, which we'll get that word a little bit today, that, uh, that experience, sometimes it's a very um, positive experience, um, you, know, a, uh, uh, you know, an act from a loving parent that sort of changed the whole direction. One of my favorite stories in that is the story of Rod Rosenblatt, I've told this story a bunch. Um, and a few of us heard it from him, uh, a Lutheran theologian. He's on the White Horse Inn. Some of us listened to that. And when he was 16 or 17, uh, he got drunk and was driving a car with a bunch of friends of his. Um, and it needs a bigger context, but it's fun just to throw it out there. And, uh, and he wrecked his car. Just crash. You know, whole thing was, uh, was just totaled. Um, long before cell phones, of course, they... Uh, they made their way to a phone, and his voice still shaking, partly from the crash, but partly out of fear of his father. Uh, uh, but totally unmade. That's the key theme in this. Uh, called his dad. He's like, Dad, wreck the car. It's total. It's like, are you okay? I'm okay. I'm okay. I think I'm okay. His, that dad was a doctor, so he went the medical route. So what about everybody else? Everybody okay? Yeah, all four of us are okay. Where are you? I'm at this. Okay, stay there. Um, so dad comes and gets him. Doesn't say anything. Of course, Rod Rosenblatt's thinking he's going to get it. You know, his dad just gets him the silent, sort of holding him up. Drops everybody off. 
Um, says, you're just in shock. Don't worry about it. Um, he's just scared. Gets home. Goes to his room. Dad comes upstairs. Dun, 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 dun. I'm embellishing a little bit. Dad sits on the bed. What's Rod expecting, of course? You know, the riot act. Rightfully so, Rod would say. I mean, I was drunk, wrecked the car, had no business doing what I was doing. He says, how about tomorrow we go and... I get, I get teary when I say this. How about tomorrow we go and get another car? became a new operating system for Rod Rosenblatt. Everything changed on that intervention. Now, there's lots to be said about that as a counselor and for y'all to, uh, to hear that. What? That's enablement. You know, how I many of you are going to reward this kid? Well, I'll give a short piece. Father's intuition, luck, providence, whatever. Key component. Rod was unmade and then was given grace upon grace upon grace. He was a dead man, and he knew it in the room. Dad came up just for the sentence of death to be carried out, but he was effectively dead. And his father did not deliver death. He delivered life. Delivered life, and it changed Rod Rosenblatt forever. That's what Rod would say. It's just changing. New lens, new operating system, you know, no longer a Moses, but now a Christ was given. So it could be something like that. Um, most of the time, it's something... Uh, not so positive, you know, could be an instance of abuse or a death or a, a season of scarcity, um, financial, you know, relational, something else that defines us and it becomes this, 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 this word which has a living and active voice. It's always sort of at work telling us who we are, what to do, how we have worth. And so in that thread, um, Last week we looked at the, uh, the Ash conformity experiment, some really old experiments in psychology, which are kind of fun to, to look at. This week I thought we'd look at um, something else uh, that's near and dear to a couple of things that are near and dear to us. Um, because when we have these, these words that become uh, uh, more than words, that become you know, sort of an operating center of each one of us, a pole that becomes the orienting pole around which our lives are built, or from which our lives move away from and move back towards. One way the Bible describes them is what? Idols. They become something else. Um, idols take from us, because remember they're, they're, they're alive. Idols take from us uh, our resources. And we comply and give them our resources. We call that, we give them worth. We give them uh, our time, our attention, our money, our, um, our thoughts, ourselves. Um, that's where the word worth uh, becomes tied into the word worship, worth-ship. And so as we worship idols, we're giving, imputing is an old word, these idols worth. And so here's this, this is cheesy. If you smell this as a setup, it is. Um, but it's a nice way to sort of crawl into a class that's going to go for so long. Just a little bit of idol worship. Um, and, and, uh, and again, if you smell a setup, you, you, you would not be far off. But, but still, it's there. I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. Well, you would think they were crazy if you didn't understand their culture and their religion. See, that's just the thing. They were worshippers of idols. And they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted, they danced, they, they made sacrifices to their idols. But they had built these enormous temples to worship their idols. It seemed like their entire existence 
climax into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. You don't really relate, do you? Let's try these. I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. See, that's just the thing. They were worshippers of idols, and they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted. They danced. They, they made sacrifices to their idols. They had built these enormous temples to their idols. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. Idol worship. It's not just about golden calves anymore. <laughs> so, you know, it gets us thinking a little bit about these things that we put worth in. Roll Tide, by the way. So, um, you know, it, that's definitely not pointing fingers. It's coming back, so... Um, What's that? Oh, he's, he's he's not wearing the ridiculous costume, but he's in there. So um, he did wear that hat though in the ESPN's cage page thing. Um, so idols, these things that take from us worth, our resources, our uh, our place, and these can be anything, um, even something like uh, the ideology about being nice. You know, just be nice, have a nice day. Something else, you know, just something that tells you who you are, and oftentimes which tells you what to tell other people and how they're supposed to be. Um, and so what's the place that we most often see this, but is in bumper stickers. Um, these are great examples of ideologies or these things which describe, you know, overstating only a little bit for some, what's driving the driver. Um, uh, if you, and some of y'all may be the sort of person, but you know, I don't, I'm not a bumper sticker kind of guy, but that's in my own sort of what's driving the driver thing. You know, I've got my own sort of thing that says, nope, I'm not the kind of person, I hear that, that puts bumper stickers on their car. Some people are, and they want to tell me who they are and how I should live my life. And so we see these in sort of, you know, sort of these pseudo-religions, these pseudo sort of life philosophies, like take it easy, life is too short, sort of a carpe diem, um, dead poet society, transcendental romanticism, Walt Whitman kind of come to the 21st century things, um, science, religion, uh, other religions, Christianity, the church, I mean, there's all sorts. So just flipping through a few, um, just be nice. Um, Even something as nice as being nice is its own ideology, can become its own idol, can become its own place. I'm always surprised at how much traction this has. I mean, if y'all are around some place in your work or amongst different groups where it's like, okay, everybody sort of think nice thoughts to so-and-so. I mean, I hear that phrase, and it's like, you know, I think it's supposed to be a kind of a, a, a humanistic prayer. Okay, let's all send nice thoughts to Gil right now, and then it's going to sort of change things. Um, and I'm not joking. I mean, this is really out there. Um, coexist, of course. We see this all the time where the dri- what's driving the driver is, is, a, is sort of a pan-religious idea. Um, all sorts, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be an equal, equally offensive person here because it can go on both sides anywhere you want. Uh, but, you know, the pan-religious place um, that all things come into one is a big one. John Lennon's Imagine is a, is a champion of all this. Science as a religion um, is certainly a big part. I just thought this was funny. This is uh, actually pretty good. Bumper stickers are what atheists have in the face of the book of Proverbs. You've got to be a certain type of Christian geek like I am to think that's funny, but I think that's pretty funny, actually. Um, 
uh, and it's something else we'll look at. So just thinking about what drives us. Bumper stickers are an easy way into that in terms of what drives the driver, what drives us, what's the word, what's the new Moses, a law around which uh, our lives are dictated. Um, because the law has words, thou shalt not and thou shalt, and you shan't do this and you shan't do that, but you shall do this, and if you're good at it, you'll tell other people to do the same thing. And that's the Ten Commandments. That's the law. And there's lots of laws in all sorts of of, uh, of, 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 uh, with all sorts of masks on them uh, that, that are just a part of being a human being. They are pan-human. It's just part of what we call human nature because that's what humans do naturally is we have orienting principles from which uh, we derive meaning. How we're going to live our life and how we want to associate with others, how we're going to choose who we're going to be around. That's the idea of church. Church just means an assembly, an ecclesia, a gathering of like-minded people. And so people that would have, you know, that, they're putting it on their car to say, hey, if you're like me, maybe we could spend time together. I mean, in a certain sense, it's that sort of church. You know, that's what, that's what, that's what sociologists would call an assembly of like-minded people. And that's part of what we do as humans, we send out signals and say, can you join me? Because we're made to be joined. So all this you know, is another way that I'm trying to set up um, uh, each of these five classes to get us thinking you know, back in a mirror. Well, what about me? What about me? What's my, what's my bumper sticker? Whether it's actually on my car or, um, or not. Um, what about me? What drives my life? What gives my life meaning? Or what is absent that I think would give my life meaning? Is it something like, you know, sort of the big three? Um, sex, money, power, power, prestige, position. Uh, is it an event? Um, is it a, an act of, of displacing grace like what Rod Rosenblatt had? Is it something much, much more awful that you've been afraid to ever utter in light? Maybe not unlike Nicodemus. What's this orienting principle? What's the fear that has you that if you said, if this only, then, dot, dot, dot. Because that then tells you what your salvation would be. And that would tell you what your personal Jesus would be. If only I didn't do X when I was 14, <coughs> then I would be free and your personal Jesus would be somehow an erasure of what happened when I was X. Um, now I'm overstating it. For, for some, yes. For others, not a bit. Not a bit. There's some of us that just live in the tyranny of a single moment. It might be a season. Um, it may be a childhood. It may be a relationship. It may be a time of, you know, I missed the boat. My entire 30s, I missed the boat. You know, why didn't I take, you know, that place? My whole life would have been different, but I stayed with the group that I was with too long, and, uh, and now I'm, I'm still paying the price. All of my com contemporaries, you know, they've got, you know, a house here or security there, and, and I don't. You know, what about me? All of that is your law. That's your Moses coming down from the mountain, giving you the tablets that say this is the meaning in your life. Uh, when we see the law clearly, then we know who our Jesus is. And so all this is to begin to reveal 
sort of those Moseses, lowercase m, so to speak, so that we'd see these, these, uh, these artificial Jesuses, so that we could then see what the real law of God is um, and the actual Christ who comes and shatters uh, the illusions of, of what is pseudo and gives us what is actual. And the good news, then, obviously, is that the actual Christ brings actual and real salvation, um, which has true peace. So comments or thoughts? You know, that's just the way that I'm trying to set up and create some tension each week of uh, idols, uh, operating systems, uh, ideologies. Um. Any thoughts? Comments? We'll move to the text in a minute. What drives the driver? What drives you? Oh, looking at my notes. This is all over the church, by the way. Um, Mark, there's thousands of idols in the church. I mean, you can make the Bible an idol. You can make reading the Bible an idol. You can make going to church itself an idol. You can make the Eucharist an idol. You can make, uh, you know, having the right church an idol. Um, uh, when the thing, when the signifier, the Eucharist, you know, the Bible, whatever else, um, becomes confused with the actual thing signified, Christ himself, it's an idol. And we forget that it's not the Bible itself, the, 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 the words on the page that are sort of, you know, magic. That'd be the Quran, for instance. The, the Quran is to Islam what Christ is to Christianity. The Bible is not to the Quran. Um, the Bible is a book. It's pages. And unless we're given the eyes to see, and this is going to be John 3, uh, it's dead letters on a page. But, as Luther would say, uh, through the Holy Spirit, the Bible becomes the, the, uh, the straw in which, um, the straw of the manger in which the baby Christ is laid. And then the Bible becomes the very thing which then drives Christ home. We'll, we'll look at that in a minute. So, so the church can have all sorts of idols too. We can, we can pick all sorts of things. Then let's turn. Let's look at, a, at John 3. Um, if you have anything on your phone, you can, can do that. And if not, I'm going to kind of, uh, I'll, I'll take care of the reading and I'll try to read in a way that people can hear. We didn't look last week at the end of John 2, but it's a fantastic little piece um, that Jesus offers. Uh, and I think it's best as we go into John 2, and, uh, John 3, and 4, which are really some pretty hard uh, chapters. Um, we're going to see Nicodemus here next week, the woman at the well, um, uh, the week following, the invalid at the pool. You know, some really great narratives from the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus has this to say about all of us, including these people. And I think this is a key way to think about these narratives in this part of John. So if you have your, your Bible, um, I should have brought some, but sorry about that. And John, the end of John 2, John 2, 24 and 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, his disciples, uh, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus did not entrust himself to any person, why? Because Jesus himself knew what was in man. What's in man? This is in man. This need to create meaning, to derive meaning, this need to give worth to something or someone, a golden calf, uh, 
uh, you know, a position, an idea, an eraser, some something. Uh, that's what's in man. And now Jesus is going to start the dismantling of saying, on our own, this is the uh, the way that you, me, you, us, uh, throughout all of history, try to make Jesus into something other than he is. We construct our own little Christ rather than allowing, rather than having the experience of Christ simply invading us and blowing us up. That's the experience of faith. And so then we hear this, uh, uh, with that as the preface, um, uh, that he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man without breaking, a, without breaking stride. Um, the event, John continues, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And then Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not, you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And that's the verse before John 3.16. So going through that, um, uh, this is Jesus knowing what is in man, not trusting himself, and then saying, let me show you what I mean. Let me show you and unmake each one of you as Rod Rosenblatt was stripped and undone by a true act of grace from a position of being laid open by, uh, by, by properly the law. He was a dead man, and he knew he did wrong. Um, uh, he comes and, he, and, and Jesus says, this is the new nature of the kingdom. This is what it's like in me. And he, and he describes this, this experience of being born again or being born from above. There's a, it's unsure which way the words go there. Uh, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler, uh, a ruler of the Jews, like I said, a member of the Sanhedrin. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, so he comes by night, John is the... Uh, the evangelist of light and dark, of day and night. He's always putting that contrast on there. Uh, and so we can, as the, uh, the writer John, which has a lot of sort of literary merit to it, uh, we know what he's talking about here. Coming to him at night, there's a, there's a sense of spiritual darkness, that which is but has not yet been revealed. So he comes in that, that, uh, that place of blinders on his eyes, that though he is a, quote, teacher of Israel, he doesn't understand these things. He cannot see. And Jesus begins to lay that out. Uh, and he says to him, um, Senator Nicodemus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, that's a true statement. 
I mean, here he is. He's saying, look, we've seen these signs. Remember the water into wine and all that sort of stuff? And we know that no one can do these things unless he comes from God. But Jesus, who knows what is in man, this, this thing right here, uh, he sees really what's going on. Nicodemus trying to create, a, uh, trying to approach and then apprehend Jesus on his own terms, trying to co-opt Jesus and keep that senator-subject kind of uh, relationship, saying, hey, we know who you are, so why don't you come and be a part of us? And by so, in so doing, you can be the junior member and I'll remain the senior, and we'll still have that relationship intact. And, and he's trying to pull him in. And then Jesus, not being, being no one's fool, since in fact he was God, um, uh, uh, answers, uh, truly, truly, amen, amen, is what the word is. Amen, amen, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does that mean? This is, of course, the famous born-again phrase, you know, huge in the 70s. Chuck, Chuck Colson um, uh, placed in the Watergate scandal and wrote the book when he was in prison, Born Again, that kind of put the, the phrase in the vernacular. Uh, and then Jimmy Carter uh, elected in 76, and he also described himself as a born-again Christian. And so all, suddenly we saw all these bumper stickers, born again, they were everywhere. Are you a born-again Christian? Um, it's kind of like saying, are you an unmarried bachelor? Um, you know, some sort of repetition. Uh, it's redundant. Jesus is saying, look, truly, truly, I tell you this, Mark, this is the way things are. Unless you're born again, which can also mean unless you're born from above, you are not a Christian. You don't have uh, the eyes to see and the ears to hear the, um, the nature of things, the nature of the kingdom of God. What is he saying? He's saying that, and this is a key principle, that faith itself, belief itself, is always a gift. What in theology, in the big books, they would call regeneration, um, being generated again, being born again, being having been born from above, that itself always remains a gift. And so tying this to John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And look, I'm not against sort of giving an altar call. I've done it many, many times. It's a great privilege to be able to be the guy standing up there, and if you believe now that something's happened and you want to come up and pray, then come on up. You know, that's a great, great privilege to have with that. But John, here, in this chapter, is saying, look, you have nothing to do with it. How much effort did you put forth when you were born the first time? You know, describe the volitional act that you had when you said, okay, now, Mom, I'm ready. You know, I've been in here long enough. Let's do this. You know, zero. And unless you're born again, unless you're born from above in the same way that you were born from below, uh, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, and he kind of upends Nicodemus. Nicodemus, what are, do you not know these things, Nicodemus? Remember, Nicodemus is trying to put the power by on him, and Jesus pulls that again. Nicodemus, understandably, pushes back. Um, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's room to be born? He's got a little repartee going. You know, he's really wanting to sort of play it out with Jesus. Okay, you know, what? You want me to crawl back in? Is that what you want me to do? And then Jesus says, uh, 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 Truly, truly, I say to you. So he's just, let me just stay on the script here. Um, Unless one is born of the water and the Spirit. So it's a little bit different. At first, it was you cannot see. 
Uh, and now, unless you're born of the water and the Spirit, you cannot uh, enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, uh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Look, when you were born the first time, even though you had nothing to do with it, that's born of the flesh. Um, the desire for um, relationship, that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. You know, right now Julie Sparkman's got this idol addiction thing going on that a lot of people are into. And Tim Keller um, says the same thing. An idol is a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. The desire for relationship, the desire for security, the desire for, uh, for love, for, um, uh, for, for comfort. These things aren't bad. When they become ultimate, they become idols. Uh, what is born of the flesh is flesh. Don't be afraid of saying, but I need you. But don't be confused by saying that is itself salvation. What is born of the flesh is flesh, but what is born of the spirit is spirit. And then he comes in and says, don't you know this? And he's referring to Ezekiel 36. When he says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know your own Bible. Um, and what is he saying with this water and spirit thing? Some of the best verses in, uh, in the Old Testament in my book. This is right before, if you remember your, uh, uh, some of your Sunday school, the Valley of Dry Bones, where there's this, and, and Ezekiel was taken, and he sees this vision of dry bones, and there's bones everywhere, and suddenly the, the, the wind blows, the spirit blows, and the bones sort of you know, start to cackle, and they come up, and they come together, and they're like, wow, but now they're still not alive, and it blows again, and there's flesh on them, it blows again, and now there's breath, into it. It's all this word play between wind and breath um, and spirit. All those words mean the same thing. He uh, says, don't you know your own scripture? You know, the bones, what, what, what did they do? They were dead, echoing the Apostle Paul. You know, you were dead, but God in his mercy gave life, Ephesians 2. Same thing to the bones. They were bones. They were sun-bleached bones. They had been so dead for so long, but God gives life. And he comes in the same place in Ezekiel 36. Where is that? Um, I should have marked all this beforehand. Uh, there it is. And I will remember water and spirit. And I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Unless you are born of the water and the spirit, the water which cleanses, remember he cleansed the temple in, in, in John 2, uh, uh, unless you are born of the water and the spirit, as the bones came alive when the wind, the breath, the spirit of God blew on them, uh, you will have no life. We are always in that passive position to receive any belief, any faith, any life, anything at all, we remain 100% in the position of creature. Remember this. My ears are open. Let me hear your word, O Lord. For by hearing your word, there I may have life. There I may have your life-giving word. Um, so he's saying all that to Nicodemus. Let me hit pause. Any comments for, so far? Then we're going to look at a... So I didn't intend this to be an art class too, but it keeps coming up in my mind. And look at another another piece from uh, from Lucas Cranach we looked at last week. Any comments on that? There's lots more to say, but 
I think I've said a lot. Um, I think I've said enough. I don't know if I've said anything, but I think I've said enough. You've said a lot. Um, so I have. I've just prattled on so far at 6,000 words. <laughs> Thoughts? Faith and belief is always a gift. That's huge. It's really big. It's really big. Um, connections? Comments? Look at one more thing then. So this is just to give you a little bit of a... Uh, Go ahead and turn the lights off. Of a frame of reference of another altarpiece. In the same way that we have a painting behind our altar. A lot of churches don't have that. It's kind of neat that the Advent still has one. It's called a Reredos. Um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of the churches in Europe have this. And this is the church in Weimar. This is a piece called the Weimar altarpiece. Um, uh, also painted by the same guy, or at least halfway, that we looked at last week, Lucas Cranach, which was a, a friend of Luther's. They, they lived both in Wittenberg at the same time and, and worked very much in concert. Luther, really, I mean, he would have people over to their house, and they would sit around, and Luther's wife, uh, Katie, would, would, would serve beer, and they would just sit around and talk theology. You know, isn't that not great? And then it just changed the world, and, and Luther would go on, and Cranach would be there, and lots of other people, and Cranach would have these sketches, and he would have these ideas for things. And of course, a lot of it was illiterate. A lot of the, 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 the people were illiterate, and so Cranach and some others would pick these up, and they would paint these scenes where a uh, little bit involved for our sort of you know, modern eyes in terms of art, but, but heavily representative of all sorts of the new theology that was reforming the church. Remember, that which is of flesh is flesh, and that which is of the spirit is spirit. The Reformation is the reformation of the church, the church away from idols and back to the, uh, the very thing which drives Christ home. Vos Christum Trivet, uh, that which drives Christ home in the scriptures, that all of the scriptures from Genesis 1 through the end of Revelation are the very thing that, uh, that deliver Christ to us. For that is a gift itself. For it is not of your own, lest you may boast. Um, belief itself. And so here's all this. And it's really, we're working to this little sort of scene in the background because it's referred here in John 3. But just to walk through it, because we've got a couple of minutes. I mean, obviously, you can see, and this is very much sort of where the Advent rests, um, the centrality of, of Christ crucified. And by Christ crucified, that's shorthand for his his life, death, and resurrection, because you see that as well, where you've got the resurrected Christ who is defeating the same two enemies, death and the devil, who Adam here is running from. You can't really see it, but that's the beast, devil, and death, who's driving him into the fires of hell here. This is all of us, Adam representing each one of us, and the resurrected Christ coming out of the tomb, you know, defeating uh, the great enemies of, of, uh, of hell and death. Um, Christ only was able to rise after first he was crucified. And, and this was always, not always, but often represented here. You can see the blood of Christ. We really got in an almost grotesque way. I felt really kind of nervous last week if you were here. But, you know, it's there, especially John 6. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, which the blood in our faith is a very important thing. Uh, and here is the blood from Christ's side. Uh, going sort of, as it were, out and landing on the head. This is Lucas Cranach, the author, I mean the painter, uh, representing each one of us, that, that the, the personal nature of, of this experience of being born from above, um, of having, being in the passive position of having the blood of Christ 
taking away our sins and the blood of Christ, uh, his death providing me life, that great substitution. So we have Cranach flanked with John the Baptist who's pointing, and it's here in John 3, we're not going to read it, I must decrease so that he, pointing to Christ himself, may increase. And this is again Luther, the guy that Cranach was two weeks before at his, you know, Luther's table drinking and hearing all this stuff again, pointing to the scriptures, you know, he's probably pointing to something else, but, but he's basically saying that's all of this is about that. All of this is about that. All of the scripture is what drives Christ home. In the same way that I said the bumper stickers are what drive the driver for the Christian, this is what drives Christ into us, into our hearts, like Ezekiel 36 was saying, drives it into our hearts so we no longer be a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh, and so that we may be born again, or born from above, the blood coming down, and, uh, and be giving life, salvation, freedom, uh, an operating system that we now process the world and find not anxiety and terror, Adam, uh, but life. And so then we come to this, this really obscure, that's another part, that's what I looked at last week, um, this obscure piece, this is going to be a detail of this area right here. What in the world is that all about? Um, well, here in verse in, uh, in 3, we read about it. It says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes it may have eternal life. And the Reformers really like this passage, that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. This idea of being lifted up and exalted. The story comes out of Numbers, Numbers 21, where um, Israel, in one of their rebellious phases, remember there's always up and down, and up and down, and up and down, uh, uh, rebelled against God, and then God delivered them a plague of, uh, of serpents, of, of poisonous snakes that caused fire when it bit, and you know, doing what it often does, not always, but often, um, it created repentance. Oh Lord, we've done this, you know, I'm a dead man, I need you, a la Rod Rosenblatt. And the Lord in his mercy said, Okay, Moses, make a serpent out of bronze serpent and raise it up on a pole. And whoever looks upon the bronze serpent, uh, if they look upon it, they shall live. Uh, and the implication there, as it goes on, is that some did and some didn't. Some didn't look upon the serpent. Even though they knew that it was life, uh, they still went down into their death, sort of still victorious, as it were, in their own autonomy. And that's what we're seeing here with this idea that as Christ is also raised on the pole, whoops, just like the serpent, let me see if I can get back to it, as Christ himself is raised on the pole, uh, he in a sense becomes a substitute serpent. Um, that they, Those of us that would gaze upon Christ, our disease, our, our, uh, our affliction, shall also be taken away as the blood comes and it lands on us. That's what... Um, uh, at least that's where Cranach wanted to represent that, that part of the scriptures as John is describing it here. Um, let me hit pause. Maybe a time for one comment or two. Lots going on in this little piece, obviously, but, but uh, this whole idea of being born again, that belief itself, even as the Son of Man, uh, as God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son to the end that all who believe, that all who are given the gift of belief, uh, for whom Christ is driven home, uh, they should not perish. Adam being driven into the uh, 
to the place of eternal punishment, uh, the eternal perishment, but have everlasting life. And then what am I hoping to do here? In a small way, this is the place of here, this is the very act of driving Christ home, vos Christum trivit, uh, that in the explication, the proclamation of, the, of Christ in the scriptures, that this space would shrink and that we would find, as, the, as Israel did um, when they gazed upon the serpent, we would find life. That's the hope. Thoughts? Quick question. What yes. Is, what is the uh, painting, uh, the uh, artwork behind the altar in the church? A reredos. R-E-R-E-D-O-S. Thank you. Or an altarpiece, sometimes, sometimes what it's called as well. Let me pray. Lord, take these words feebly but hu- and humbly offered and, uh, and make them yours, Lord, where they would be a place uh, where your son was laying in the manger, as it were, and could be driven home uh, for the sake of life and salvation, uh, for peace, for joy, contentment, uh, for deliverance, for redemption. Lord, allow your work to be done in your way, and may it not lack for anything. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.